I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Hello, welcome to this episode of If I Was Starting Today. I am I'm running on about four hours of sleep thanks to my amazing youngest starter, Ren. But I'm I'll definitely be bringing the energy today because I'm really excited to talk about something I've been wanting to do for a while, but I've finally done it, and it might end up being a horrible decision, but that's okay. I've been working with, it's been over 100 startups in the form of teaching to them, mentoring them through VCs or accelerators, or even as a client at our agency Growth Hit. And as I'm recording this, I made an angel investment in one. And it was one I, I just couldn't pass up because as I'm kind of working on my own investment thesis and criteria, it really checked every box. And it was actually a bigger check than I wanted to write. So I want to get into my thought process behind it. And so first, before we get in, to this, it's like, okay, what is this thing called angel investing? And and how does that compare to other types of investing? So simply put, again, I'm by no means a professional in this. Angel investing is where you give up a certain sum of cash. It could be like a small check of 10K, 25K, 100K, 500K. And it's for a portion of equity in a company that is very early stage. It could be an idea. It could be literally a product. Maybe they have a little bit of traction. And really, you're making a bet that this is going to have a significant return basically like 10x or more on your investment. But it is very risky, right? Because there's some studies around startups like 90% fail. And also, you're probably not going to see a return on this for a while. They say it's like five or even over seven years. Like I have a, a friend who invested in a company that actually got acquired by Airbnb. And then when Airbnb went public, he saw that ROI, which was amazing. But he made that initial investment 10 years ago, which is kind of insane. And the other thing is the way you invest, the way I I did it with this one is with a safe agreement. It's a simple agreement for future equity. You could also do it as a convertible note. That's kind of high level, my dumbed down definition of, of angel investing. So high risk, but high reward, not liquid at all. It's going to be a while before you see your money, but it could be life-changing, right? And so why would I want to get into this? So first, let me take a step back and look at like my overall personal allocation. It's funny, if you just saw my overall allocation on paper, you would say that guy is not very risky at all because we have a decent amount in cash with like my wife and myself. We And then obviously like we have our 401ks, we're in index funds. We actually don't have any real estate. We sold our, our condo. You could say my business is the riskiest asset, even though that's becoming more predictable. So my overall profile is pretty conservative. And so as I look at where to invest and put money, you kind of want to ask yourself a question, where do you have an advantage? Where do you have market insight to get that edge? So for me, it's not with real estate. It's not in the public markets or equities. I wish it was. Because I've gotten so many reps and been able to see companies at early stage do well and not do well, I'm starting to see some things that work and don't work there. And maybe that's my advantage after working with 100 companies. So I've essentially given myself a pool of money to start doing angel investing. And so it's significant to me. However, to big investors, it'd be very small. So it's basically like 100 grand over a certain amount of time to write checks. And ideally, I wanted to write checks in increments of, of 10K, but this one was, was 25K, which for me was big. So the investment I made in is Bala 
nursing shoes. Before I get into why I like it, let me explain what is Bala. So Bala are literally shoes for nurses. It's some ex-Nike and Under Armour people have come together and they've essentially found a very big problem because nurses, they're on their feet for 12 hours at a time. They go through shoes quite a bit and actual running shoes that they use, those are actually made for guys' feet. And then when people size them for women, they just make a smaller version for guys. But actually your feet are different based on your gender. I did not know this. This was all news to me. And so the thing that I want to talk about is why am I investing in nursing shoes? Because at first glance, it's like that doesn't sound very exciting. But once I got into the details, it was quite eye-opening. I'm going to go through this like two different ways. First, why I like it. And then what are my concerns? I want to do this publicly almost as like a decision journal. That way we can go back whether Bala is huge and does an IPO and I look like a genius or it flails out in three to five years just so I can be like, okay, why did I make this decision and did that prove to be true or not? So here are kind of the five things that I like about Bala. First, we'll call this riches and niches. After working with a decent amount of D2C brands, the ones that have been a breakout success that have been the most impressive in my mind are the ones that weren't trying to go to a massive market. They're the ones that actually niche down. They're the ones that knew their exact persona. They knew that exact pain point and they served them right then and there. And so one thing that Bala, that I like about it is they're literally talking to one persona and it's to nurses and they know their problem. They know that it's around shoes that don't work. They're wearing running shoes, they're wearing clogs. And the thing that they did is they actually physically spoke to a thousand nurses. They surveyed over 40,000 to validate that they actually are going after a niche with a true problem that they can solve. And so seeing them, you know, do that kind of hand-to-hand combat, do that qualitative research was super appetizing for me. Okay. So I like the niche. I like that they're going after a underserved audience that has high intent in the problem they're trying to solve. The second thing, after working with a lot of D2C brands, we've created a checklist of what we like in a direct-to-consumer brand. And if they check these boxes from a growth perspective, we absolutely want them as a client. And so from an investment perspective, I was looking at it from that same lens. So first, are they creating a product that is a painkiller or a vitamin? Is it something that's just a nice to have or is a must have? Are they solving a problem? And they're doing that because they've talked to customers that, hey, we need shoes that can actually survive our 12 hour shift. Okay, the second thing, are they marketing to a specific persona? Are they marketing to everybody? So clearly they're going after nurses. The third thing, and this one is so important is, is the consumer are proactively searching out this problem or are they passive? Like one example is we've worked with some really cool kind of lifestyle brands that are making just another t-shirt, just another pair of jeans. And it's really hard to one, get people to switch to their product and to find those people online because they're not searching for the problem. So it's a little bit more of a branding and aspirational play. But we can see with search volume and from talking to customers that they're proactively going after this product. So the fourth thing, this one's big from a growth perspective. Because it's one thing to have traction, but how can you grow in a cost-effective way? So you need to ask a very simple question. Is there high referral potential? Is there high virality? So to give an example, like a brand like Glossier, where it's beauty products, the people that use it um, talk about it on a platform like Instagram or TikTok, that has high referral potential. A product like ED, like Viagra, has a low referral potential because you're not using that product and then talking about it on social media, how effective it was. And so this one absolutely has high referral potential. And it's something that you wear, you're out and about quite a bit. So it's like mini billboards on your feet. And then another big one, a 
especially with e-commerce, is what is their average order value? Because one thing that I worry about, especially in you know like the beauty space, if there isn't high repeat purchase, if the average order value is under forty bucks, man, it's going to be really hard to have good margins and good unit economics on selling those things. But because this is in the triple digits, it's one hundred twenty bucks, and they're even seeing that people are buying two to three at a time because they want different colors, so they can get their AOV up over two fifty. So that's also very appetizing because then that's more room to play with for customer acquisition costs. And then the final thing, this one's a little iffy, but it's high repeat purchase. Because when you have a product with high repeat purchase, you acquire one person and you get multiple sales over a lifetime, right? So that's why like parents that are buying diapers, buying baby wipes, it's a great consumer to have because they're always restocking. When you're in the acquisition game, meaning you're only going to get one transaction from them in a year, in a lifetime, right? You're selling Christmas trees, you're selling diamond rings, then you're always having to fill the funnel with new customers. So initially, you would kind of think that shoes would be in the acquisition category. That's what I thought. What they're seeing is this persona goes through shoes faster than basically anybody else because they're on their feet so much. There's the frequency to buy is higher than other people. And then the second thing that I really like is they're finding that people don't just want one pair. They want multiple pairs with different colors for their different outfits or their different scrubs. And so they're starting to see that this is going to have a higher repeat purchase rate than most other shoe categories other than like power joggers. So those six things for me caught my attention. It's like, wow, they're checking the box on the DTC checklist. Okay, so let's talk about this idea of validated product. So there's kind of two things going on here. It's one thing to have a cool idea and get a lot of excitement and buzz and get people to sign up for your wait list. That shows great intent, but that doesn't show true product market fit. Honestly, the best sign of product market fit is if people are passing the swipe test. And when I say the swipe test, it means are they getting out their credit card? And are they swiping and giving you money to show they want the product? So with Bala, this is what probably put this over the edge and why I invested. They ran basically no ads. They built up a community and they were able to get a pretty big social following, a pretty big email list. And they did a test of let's do pre-orders. And within five days, they sold over 5,000 pairs of shoes, got to 750,000. And for context, in that same time frame when Allbirds launched, they only sold 1,000 pairs. And now Allbirds obviously is an amazing growth story. So they've outperformed Allbirds by 5x in the same time frame. They've gone on to double that and sell 1.5 million in sales of shoes in two weeks. And they did this with no ad dollars. So that answers the first question. They have product market fit. The second thing that I think is really important around this idea of a validated product and product market fit is they did it with minimal ad spend. Because some people can hit those sales numbers, but when you really peel back the onion, you see like, wow, they actually had to pay for all of those sales. And when you're doing that in the early days, that scares me a little bit because to grow, you're going to have to spend even more and usually you're not going to be as efficient. But they did all of this on the back of their existing community and only spent two grand of ads to do that. So that tells me as a growth marketer, there's huge potential for growth because they haven't spent really any money. And then the other thing that I like that I'm investing in is the team. Whenever you're thinking of investing in a team, I put it into two categories. Is it someone that is an up and comer that you're like, wow, this person has proven they can get stuff done, high intelligence, high bias towards action, or is it a been there, done that? It's, is it someone that started a company, taken an idea, turned it into something that's 
sustainable and sold it or has, has taken it to that next level. So this team is a little bit of both. No one has true startup experience. However, they have experience in the shoe category by working at Nike and doing some amazing things there. The thing that I'm probably investing in more in is the up and comers. Because just talking with the team for three months, every check-in, they hit a different milestone. They have a new thing to show, more progress, more traction. And that's what I really care about is, are they momentum makers where they're able to always do something new and, and get traction? So the other thing, kind of bonus points for them is, I think they've been really creative and innovative with what they've done. The fact that they did 1.5 million in sales without any ad dollars, and they did it by doing something very smart. They partnered with the top nurse influencer, and they're able to get them as an advisor, and they're able to use that influencer to build their community. And that community has essentially been responsible for their first batch of sales. So I like seeing that. And they've also invested in some brand initiatives, like a, a video they put out that you, I'll put in the show notes, but it's a, a pretty entertaining video that kind of tells the story of Bala. And then the final thing on why I'm investing, it's actually for reasons outside of Bala. It's I, I learn, I, I try and learn by reading, I try and learn by, by listening. And that works somewhat well. But honestly, for me, it's the stickiest when I learn by doing. And by setting aside like this little fund for myself to do angel investments, it's making myself roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty and actually, you know, do the work, like go through the paperwork, do the vetting process, create an investment thesis, and then actually put the money to work and, and see what happens. Like to give perspective, I was, I used to work in investment banking and everyone told me, oh, you've, you've got to get an MBA. That's what you do. You go to business school and that's just the path. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So I started studying for the GMAT. I started looking at MBA programs and I got through all the courses. I was about to take the test and I was like, this is dumb. I'm like, I'm about to take this test, apply to these schools, to go to schools for two years, and then hopefully start a business or do something. It's like, why don't I just do something on my own? I learn better that way. I learn better through podcasts and books and YouTube videos. And so that's what I did. So I'm kind of taking the same approach with angel investing is, is learning by doing. So that is why I'm investing. So I think it's worth calling out some of my concerns with getting into this. So like I said before, this is a startup and startups do not work most of the time. 90% of startups fail. So we have that going against us. And the other thing is I'm putting this money to work and I'm not going to see ROI for seven years. Like, what could I do with this money to get an ROI in seven years? I could put this in a CD. I could put this in the stock market. I could put this towards real estate. But I'm choosing something very risky and something that is not liquid. So that's just in general with startup investing. But with Bala, I am concerned about product quality. They have had to do their first run of shoes during a pandemic. It's coming from China. They have not been over there to do quality control to make sure the product's legit. So that's that's a concern. A second concern is, you know, the shoe category in general has high return rate around 20%. So what is Bala going to have? They're really trying to reinvent sizing and they're doing it in a way where they have haven't been able to touch and feel the product, educating consumers when they make that purchase on their new sizing and fit when they're used to how their Nikes fit, how their New Balance's shoes fit. What is their return rate going to be and how is that going to impact customer satisfaction? The third thing is this is a new brand. They're doing everything for the first time. They have no true trust or brand loyalty. They have some good signals, but you're going up against other brands that already have built-in loyalty like Nike, Adidas, New Balance. How can you compete with those guys in this space? Consumer growth, 
they, like I said, I love that they didn't grow in the back of ads. They grew in the back of community. However, it was just one community. Can they replicate that to go to other communities, influencers, organizations, and associations? Can they do it through partnerships? Can they grow through ads? Those will be big questions that show if they can take this from a seven-figure company to an eight-figure company uh, or nine-figure company. And then the last thing is the team. I've spoken with Brian quite a bit. I don't know the rest of the team that well. How will they handle the unknown unknowns, You know, especially doing this in a remote world where they're used to working in person? So there's a lot of things they're going to have to navigate. It's definitely not um, the easiest time to, to launch a startup. So those are some things that uh, I'll be keeping an eye on. And like as an investor, maybe there's things I could support on. But, but yeah, we'll do, um, I think it'd be fun also to get the Brian, the CEO on the podcast to talk to him to see how it's going and maybe do a check-in on how the investment is performing with one of the next big updates with their next fundraise or a milestone they hit. But yep, yeah, tweet at me at Jim W. Huffman. Would love to get your thoughts on how I'm approaching angel investing and the investment criteria, what you like, what you think is dumb, any other feedback. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.